The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled New Horizons for Advanced Endometrial Cancer Treatment, Utilizing Innovative Immunotherapies and Other Novel Approaches. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GEP860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, I'm Dr. Shannon Weston, professor and gynecologic oncologist from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Welcome to this educational activity entitled New Horizons for Advanced Endometrial Cancer Treatment, Utilizing Innovative Immunotherapies and Other Novel Approaches. Our goal today is to explore recent advances for the treatment of recurrent and advanced endometrial cancer. We'll cover what these developments mean for patients, as well as discuss their effective implementation for multidisciplinary provider teams. We'll also take a look at future impact by bringing regimens into the frontline setting and explore approaches using novel mechanisms of action, all in an effort to improve outcomes for patients with endometrial cancer. Let's get started. So first, let's level set and talk about how common endometrial cancer is. And the bottom line is it's the most common gynecologic cancer. Across all cancer types in the U.S., it's about 3.4% of new cases. But more importantly, it it, um, provides about 2.1% of all deaths. And different from most other solid tumors, the incidence of endometrial cancer is increasing, as is the death rate. And so this is a clear unmet need for our patient population. The median age of diagnosis is 63, but you can see that diagnoses really can come along the entire age continuum, and we are seeing more and more patients diagnosed at early age. This is the way we stage endometrial cancer. This is a surgically staged cancer, and the, the, the fortunate thing is the majority are diagnosed at early stage, where they can be cured with relatively straightforward surgery as well as perhaps the addition of radiotherapy. As we get into more advanced stages, the survival does decrease. It has an overall 81% relative, uh, five-year relative survival, which is driven by that early um, stage of diagnosis, but the outcomes for patients with advanced stage or recurrent disease are quite poor. And whenever we talk about endometrial cancer, we have to talk about the disparities which have been observed for um, for patients with this disease. And, and if we look at um, endometrial cancer versus ovarian cancer, for example, the mortality rates have been increasing and are now comparable to ovarian cancer. Traditionally, we taught that endometrial cancer is more common, but ovarian cancer is more deadly. And now that simply isn't true. Um, but even more so comparing when after we finish comparing endometrial to ovarian cancer, when we look at racial uh, disparities in endometrial cancer, it is very clear that the burden of mortality has really increased disproportionately among black women. Um, and if you look at these graphs along the bottom of my slide, you can see that patients with that are black um, do much worse than white women or even Hispanic women. And so this is an area where research really is, um, I would say, exploding to understand why this happens. And as we look at the clinical trials I'm going to discuss today, you'll see that unfortunately, many of them don't have many black women in the clinical trials. So this is an area of great need. 
a little bit more digging a little bit more into the data around survival disparities. So as I mentioned, women um, that are black have a higher mortality than women are that are white. And in the past, we used to think, oh, well, this is because black women are more likely to have non-endometrioid type cancers that do more poorly, or they come in at an advanced stage. But when you control for these very important um, factors, we actually don't see that that's the only um, factor. So there are other uh, potential risks that are leading to these disparities in black women. So again, a little bit of level setting, talking about the basics of treatment. So for patients with uh, high-risk disease or metastatic disease, stage three or four, or newly recurrent who have not really received any therapy other than surgery, the, the bottom line is the backbone of, um, of therapy is chemotherapy, including paclitaxel and uh, carboplatin. And this has been shown in um, several randomized trials, and including a randomized phase uh, three trial in carcinosarcoma, where paclitaxel and carboplatin was um, improved uh, survival outcomes over ifosamide and paclitaxel. Now, in GOG 209, this was a study that compared the, the previous standard of care, which was called the TAP regimen, which was um, paclitaxel, adriamycin, and cisplatin. Um, and that was compared to paclitaxel carboplatin. It was a non-inferiority trial. And what it demonstrated was there was um, that paclitaxel and carboplatin was not inferior to the TAP regimen. And so that really established it as the standard of care for all comers endometrial cancer. Now, recently, we've done a lot better job, and I'm going to get into this into some more detail over the next few slides, of molecularly classifying endometrial cancer, not just lumping everybody together as the same disease. And Amanda Nichols-Fader and her colleagues really um, are to be congratulated because they really pushed the envelope for patients with uterine serous. Uterine serous has a high proportion of aberrations in HER2. And so they looked at the addition of trastuzumab to paclitaxel and carboplatin and found improvement in survival when trastuzumab was added in patients that had high expression of HER2. So as I mentioned, we're, we're doing better. We're learning that in fact, endometrial cancer isn't just one disease, but in fact, it's many. Right now, our kind of best way to molecularly classify is using the data that were generated through the Cancer Genome Atlas, where we found there were four major subtypes of endometrial cancer. The poly ultra-mutated, okay, which has um, a prob anywhere from 100 to 500 mutations, including aberrations in P10 as well as hypermutated, which are microsatellite instability high, often have aberrations in the Lynch proteins and genes. They see about 10 to 20 mutations, often the endometrioid type. Now, these two are so-called hot tumors, which means they have the opportunity to potentially um, benefit from immunotherapy. Conversely, on the cold tumor side, you can see it's driven by copy number. So those all the way over on the right copy number high tumors tend to be more consistent with um, serous type tumors with P53 mutations and high number of uh, copy number aberrations. Conversely, the copy number low typically don't have many mutations, um, typically endometrioid type, although we can see um, other cell types in, uh, in this group, and very commonly have P10 and beta-catenin mutations. So the question is, is can we use what we know molecularly to bin tumors into these classifiers? 
And can we use these molecular classifications to guide treatment? Okay. So as I mentioned, the, the poly and the microsatellite instability high tumors tend to be, um, have high levels of mutations and be potentially more sensitive to immunotherapy. So the, identifying those patients first seems to be the, the best choice. Now the promise group put together a way to simply, and I put it in quotes, um, bin patients by their molecular aberrations. And the reason I put it in air quotes is because it requires next-gen sequencing, which isn't necessarily something that everybody has access to. But be that as it may, um, what you can do is you can do the next-gen sequencing to identify if the tumor is poly hypermutated or ultramutated. Then you move forward with protein um, uh, assessment looking for microsatellite instability. And then finally, utilize your p53 uh, testing, whether that's mutation or protein, to bin the tumors into either copy number low or copy number high. And when you do that, you can see clearly um, an impact on prognosis. And potentially, we may be able to guide therapy. And that's beyond the scope of this particular talk today, but it is something that's coming down the pike. And to that end, this molecular um, testing and classification has been included in a number of guidelines. These are the ESGO, ESTRO, ESP guidelines, where you can see that they define prognostic risk groups utilizing molecular classification. What's nice about this is on the left, you can see the kind of standard uh, uh, risk group classification with just pathology, just stage, just uh, lymphovascular space invasion, uh, invasion. So if you don't have the molecular classification, you can still bin your patient. However, if you do have your molecular classifiers done, then that may change some of the risks. Specifically, the, the major thing that changes is poly um, ultramutated move into a low risk group because it does appear they may not need as aggressive therapy as some of the other aber aberrations. Similarly, the NCCN um, does suggest that uh, testing um, and doing molecular analyses is appropriate in this patient population. And again, as I mentioned, you start with that poly sequencing, move on to your DNA mismatch repair protein testing, and then finally finish it up with the p53 um, testing. Now, this is just this is just prescriptive to do. They don't provide guidelines of how to use it yet, and that's because there are studies that are ongoing that will hopefully give us that information. So let's talk a little bit more about mismatch repair um, gene aberration and specifically what uh, what we expect in endometrial cancer. So this is actually a graph that shows you a number of different cancers. And what I want to call your attention to is the uterine cancers. It's most common to see microsatellite instability high. And we've seen it about probably 30% of, uh, uh, of tumors. And it is predominantly in that endometrioid type. Some of the, the struggles that we've had certainly have been around access to genetic counseling. You know, the nice thing about testing of endometrial cancer is this can be done at the pathology level. That early screen, you don't have to involve really anybody else. And so I think some places that have been the most successful have made this an automated order. So for us at our institution, every patient who has surgery for endometrial cancer automatically gets testing of these proteins. It's built in. So there takes away that idea like, oh, I forgot to order this or I'm sure someone else is going to do it or, and that type of thing. And so when we are talking to our patients, we tell every single patient who's undergoing surgery for endometrial cancer, 
This will be done as part of routine testing to potentially identify if you have Lynch syndrome and also to potentially guide your, tr- your treatment in the future. Um, and so we found that to be really helpful. Other options are to make sure you've got an advanced practice provider or staff that that's their job. You know, when they're booking the surgery, they order this. Or when you're reviewing the, the pathology, you order it. So I think things like that, anything that can be made more automated always helps us um, get it done. And so this is just a little bit more around that that idea of collaborating with your pathologist. You know, certainly, I think many of us that are doing um, oncology surgery uh, need a pathologist that understands our disease, that can make appropriate um, uh, diagnoses in an efficient fashion and communicates well for, with us to understand um, how, to, how to best care for our patients. So, you know, if you've got a pathologist that you can collaborate with, then you can help prioritize, work together to prioritize what testing is being done. As I mentioned, we do, you know, prioritize the, the testing of mismatch repair deficiency. But as we talk more t- today about some of the other targets that are under uh, evaluation and some of the new agents that are coming down the pike, you know, we want to be mindful of the amount of tissue we have and what are we using it for and ensuring we don't run out of tissue and then not be able to do additional testing that might help our patient. So let's get more into the immunotherapy piece, right? So we've, we've talked a little bit about those hot tumors, the poli, as well as the microsatellite instability high. We, when we talk about immunotherapy, what exactly do we mean? So essentially, we're the, the bulk or the the, the majority right now of immunotherapy and the most active immunotherapy in endometrial cancer is around the PD-1, PD-L1 checkpoint. Now, if you think about it, these checkpoints are like breaks on our immune system. <clears throat> and so what, when we block those breaks, when we either use a PD-1 or a PD-L1 inhibitor, that helps remove those breaks. It takes off the breaks to let the immune cells kind of run wild. The reason we talk about hot and cold tumors is you can rev up the immune system or take the breaks off the immune system in a cold tumor and it will hide. It, it will not be identified by those immune cells. Conversely, those hot tumors, it, it seems they're easier for the um, immune cells to find and that's why we see um, efficacy. So we've seen a number of different studies reported around single agent checkpoint inhibition, and it does seem to be an effective strategy, but it has to be in a biomarker selected group. So I'm going to go through uh, quickly three major studies um, that have led to uh, FDA approval. The first is Keynote 158, which was looking at pembrolizumab as a single agent for um, recurrent endometrial cancer. Um, and importantly, this was for microsatellite instability high or mismatch repair deficient tumors that had had at least one prior regimen um, and measurable disease. They were treated with pembrolizumab 200 milligrams IV every three weeks, and the primary endpoint was response. And you can see here, spoiler alert, I think most of you have heard, it was a positive trial and it did yield um, an FDA approval in endometrial cancer in 2022. But we already were using this in clinical practice because we knew there was a tissue agnostic approval in 2017 that allowed us to use this agent for any mismatch repair deficient tumor. But here are the data. Um, we saw an incredible waterfall plot. The majority of patients with some type of reduction in disease and a 50% response rate, um, as well as 18% achieving stable disease. Importantly, progression-free survival was very high at 13 
and overall survival um, achieved 65 uh, months, which was just unheard of in this disease. Now, the phase one Garnet uh, study looked at dostarlamab. Um, now, this again was open to multiple tumor types, but they did have several cohorts which were um, focused on endometrial cancer. You can see A1 was in mismatch repair deficient or microsatellite instability high, and A2 was in mismatch repair proficient or microsatellite stable disease. Um, and this was recurrent or advanced endometrial cancer. They had to have uh, prior platinum, but they... Um, uh, they had at least two um, prior lines of, of treatment. So this was dosed at 500 milligrams IV every three weeks for four cycles and then bumped up to 1,000 milligrams every six. And similarly, uh, it did work. <laughs> and so we did have FDA approvals, including a tissue agnostic approval in 2021 and an um, uh, endometrial cancer mismatch repair deficient approval in 2021. And this is why. So beautiful swimmer plots. You can see some patients on for over three years um, and counting. Um, response rate was 45% in that tumor type uh, that was mismatch repair deficient. A little bit less, but still some activity in mismatch repair proficient, 15%. Not quite what we were hoping for there, but as expected, because we do know that biomarker direction is the most important thing in this disease. Similarly, we saw a PFS um, that was quite high at six, and overall survival has not yet been reached. So the Phaedra trial is a phase two trial of Dervalumab, um, and this is, again, in patients with either mismatch repair deficient or a proficient um, endometrial cancer. You can see they laid it out in two different cohorts. All patients were treated with 1,500 milligrams of Dervalumab IV every four weeks, and um, response rate was the um, primary endpoint. Looks good. So again, similar to um, to the last two studies, 47% response rate in that mismatch repair deficient group, um, progression-free survival eight months, and overall survival not yet reached. So very consistent data across the different checkpoint inhibitors for mismatch repair uh, deficiency. Similar to the other two studies, low response rate for the proficient tumors, only 3%. So a clear, um, I think, message that single agent immunotherapy in mismatch repair deficient disease is the standard of care. So that's only 30% of patients. So what do we do for the patient population that has microsatellite stable disease? Well, we have a combination for that. Um, the combination of pembrolizumab with um, the multi-tyrosine uh, kinase inhibitor lenvatinib um, has shown quite a bit of activity for patients that are microsatellite stable. And this did achieve an um, accelerated FDA approval in 2019 and full approval um, on tw in 2021. So let's look at the data that led to that full approval. So this was the phase three Keynote 775 study, um, which was an advanced and recurrent endometrial cancer. They had to have at least one prior platinum-based chemotherapy and an appropriate performance status of zero to one. And this is important. And patients were then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to either the lenvatinib 20 milligrams PO daily with pembrolizumab 200 milligrams IV every three weeks, or standard of care chemotherapy with either doxorubicin or paclitaxel, weekly paclitaxel. Uh, the primary endpoints, it was actually dual primary endpoints of progression-free survival by Bicker or, um, and overall survival. And they also looked at response rate as well as uh, quality of life, which is incredibly important um, with this regimen. And what they found was across um, 
the entire population, progression-free survival, overall survival, and response rate were all statistically uh, significantly improved with the combination over chemotherapy. And this is just a snapshot of of those results, but I'm going to get into it in a little bit more detail. So first here is the overall survival benefit. You can see um, that they did allow some patients that were mismatch repair deficient on. Um, so they did look at the proficient group separately and you can see that there was a 30% reduction in the risk of death for those patients that were treated with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab is equivalent to about a six month um, difference in progression for, or sorry, in overall survival. Um, this was also uh, recapitulated in the all comers group um, that included uh, a minority of patients with mismatch repair uh, deficiency. Similarly, we saw a benefit in progression-free survival, um, both in the all-comer population as well as the mismatch repair proficient group. You see a 40% reduction in the risk of progression um, in the group that was treated with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. And then, of course, um, this was all consistent with an improvement in response rate. So about a doubling in the response rate, 32% response rate in the um, the mismatch repair proficient group, 30, almost 34% response rate in the group um, that was all comers. But importantly, look at the duration of response. The duration of response was nine months, which is really impressive. The disease control rate was 72%. So nearly almost all patients had benefit from this combination. So let's talk about a case. Let's let's put this into context for a patient in front of us. So this is a 59-year-old woman who was diagnosed with a a FIGO-grade 1 endometrial cancer. She underwent minimally invasive hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy and sentinel lymph node dissection. Her final pathology was grade 2, endometrioid type, stage 3C1. And we got some immunohistochemistry, and it revealed that she had microsatellite-stable or mismatch repair proficient disease. So she was treated with chemotherapy. She received paclitaxel and carvapodin, and initially she had a very, very nice response. But unfortunately, four months after completing her first-line chemotherapy, she presents complaining of new abdominal symptoms. So we got some scans, and you can see what we found. Some disease on the liver, peritoneal carcinomatosis, disease along the diaphragm. Um, so we um, obtained a biopsy and it did confirm metastatic disease. So what are her options? What can we talk to her about? Well, let's get into a little bit more detail to, to decide. So first, you know, I think it's always important to highlight we are not a paternalistic society when, as we're working through decisions with our patients, right? We want to engage our patients in shared decision-making. The, the way to do that, and the, I love like how simple these steps are, um, you know, we invite our patients to participate in the decision-making. We present the options, review risks and benefits, help them to kind of interpret those risks and benefits in the context of where they are. Um, We facilitate that deliberation and decision-making and then assist with um, implementation. Now, when we're doing that, there are lots of things on the patient level that should be considered, right? What other medications is she on? What surgeries has she had or is surgery an option? What are her current comorbidities that might impact the side effects that she could have? What's important to her? What symptoms is she already having? What symptoms make her worried? And what's her, what are her goals around quality of life? And then we also, of course, want to make sure that patients will adhere to the, the, um, the regimen that we, we prescribe. And so thinking through how compliant and how easily um, something can be given. So back to our patient. So we decided to give her 
pembrolinvatinib, right? She had microsatellite stable disease. She had her chemotherapy already. And this is an FDA-approved regimen that is molecularly targeted to her. So she gets about a month of treatment and then presents with grade 2 diarrhea. So this is this happens all the time, right? I mean, and we know this is one of the tricky side effects or adverse events that we can see with this combination because it overlaps. We can get the diarrhea from the Pembro. We can get the diarrhea from the lenvatinib. And really, you know, we want to think through how we approach the patient to handle these overlapping toxicities. So first, let's level set around immune-related adverse events. The bottom line is it's inflammation and it can happen anywhere. But certainly there are more common places that we see these um, these adverse events, including um, in the skin where we can see rash or puritis, uh, the GI system where we see diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, the endocrine system where we can see aberrations in thyroid, and of course the pulmonary system where we can see pneumonitis. And, you know, the timing really matters, right? So a lot of the immune-related adverse events happen during specific um, time points. So earliest usually is going to be the rash or dermatitis. Then um, we see uh, uh, colitis, liver, endocrine, all kind of later in the duration. But what I want to call your attention to is the later uh, effects. So nephritis happening much, much later. And then endocrinopathies really can happen at any time, even after um, treatment with immunotherapy, which is really important just to keep it top of mind as you're doing your assessment. Now, I'm not going to go through this in detail because there's a lot of great data on here, but I wanted to provide it for your reference, but just give you a sense of when we're grading these, um, how do we manage them? So, you know, grade one is going to be minimal to no symptoms. Really, you identified it based on a test probably, but the patient feels well. In general, you can continue checkpoint inhibitor therapy at that point with, with some exceptions. Grade two is going to be mild to moderate symptoms, and for most, you're going to hold for that at least and maybe um, consider steroids to help reverse that and then maybe resume once it's resolved. And then finally, grade three or four, which is severe or life-threatening, again, definitely holding checkpoint, high-dose steroids, usually inpatient, IV, and really, I this is where multidisciplinary care is so important where we you know enlist the specialist of choice, right? So if it's an endocrinopathy get in with endocrine, if it's GI, have your gastro there, and really work together to to determine, one, can we reverse this, and two, would we ever reconsider um, redosing? Now, when we get into the combination strategy using the tyrosine kinase inhibitor with immune, then you can have two sets of adverse event profiles with some overlapping. I I love this little graph where you can see the rash, the diarrhea, hepatitis, thyroid, um, and uh, altered mental status can all be potentially seen with either one of these agents. And so, you know, one strategy that we use um, that I think is really important is stop the TKI. It's quick, it has a shorter half-life, and if that reverses your toxicity, then you've got your answer. Of course, sometimes if the patient is is very ill, you have to bring them in. Utilizing kind of steroids and things like that is is appropriate, but but this is where communication with the patient is really critical, making sure that she knows if she begins to have any diarrhea, if she begins to have any rash, she doesn't want to wait until it gets really extensive or really serious, that she needs to call you immediately so that you can start, um, you know, your, the appropriate actions like stopping the drug, 
instituting, you know, basic care, things like that. Um, but really stopping that TKI can be really helpful and identifying because if the patient has diarrhea, like our patient, and you stop the TKI and her diarrhea continues, well, then you've got your answer. I do think the timing also, you know, we wouldn't expect the the GI toxicities for IO this soon for, for our particular patient. So my money is on the lenvatinib, but um, of course you wanna be ready for either, um, either uh, option. Now, this is just getting a little bit more into specific grading and uh, management based on GI, endocrine, and dermatologic. You can see that there's some really nice guidelines here. So for our patient, let's look at the this gastrointestinal. So if she, we did determine that she had an immune um, driven uh, diarrhea, you can see you would grade it based on stools. And this is important. You grade it based on stools above baseline. A lot of our patients have had surgeries. They may have baseline um, uh, irritable bowel, things like that. So you, you find out, you always want to identify how many um, bowel movements they have a day on a normal day, and then use that to guide what grade they are when they started the medications. With, um, as we mentioned, grade one, you can continue the, um, the checkpoint inhibitor and just use some symptomatic things like antispasmodics, antidiarrheals. For a grade two, which is four to six above baseline, you're going to hold drug and start some steroids. And this can be done orally, uh, but it really is going to depend on um, the status of the patient. I think most of us end up admitting these patients because you need to give them fluids because they're getting dehydrated. And you can titrate the steroids a little bit easier um, when they're in the ho- in-house. Um, if it doesn't get better, you can consider infliximab or even vetalizumab. But these, this is where our multidisciplinary care really helps to have a gastroenterology um, specialist who does this, who understands this, to help guide those decisions and also manage um, help manage side effects from from these drugs. So I think we kind of talked through our patient um, with diarrhea. You know, I think for for grade two, we would definitely want to hold um, both drugs, but um, give her a couple of days and see if she improves with just holding the lenvatinib, give her some um, antispasmodics, some anti-motility agents, and if she doesn't get better, bring her in for steroids. Just a few kind of thoughts around uh, communication. So, you know, this gets back to what I was talking about. You want to make sure your patient is aware and understands what these regimens are and how they're different from chemotherapy. And so making sure you're educating your patient about her options, the how it works, and what is possible as far as adverse events. And this is going to not only be before you start, but also kind of throughout treatment, kind of highlighting things. And if you learn new things, making sure your patient is aware. Things to emphasize, again, it works differently. It has unique um, side effects and really get them to report as soon as possible. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot of really neat um, things available for patient education. So different handouts, wallet cards, um, you can give them medications ahead of time. So giving them a prescription for anti-nausea, anti-diarrhea medicines and say, okay, I still want you to call me when you have these symptoms, but because it's so common, I'm going to go ahead and give them to you so that you're ready so you don't have to suffer or wait for me. So we've talked a lot about um, these different immunotherapy regimens, um, and I think it's really important to note that right now these are second line and beyond, but more than likely these are going to move earlier and earlier um, into upfront care. 
So uh, let's talk about a case that that will help us understand what is coming for our patients in the future. So this is a patient I saw in my clinic, 62-year-old retired nurse. Um, She was diagnosed with stage 4 carcinosarcoma. She had not received any therapy as yet. And as expected, when we tested her tumor, it was microsatellite stable. She is very healthy. She is very motivated. And she has a performance status of zero. So she's ready to do whatever she could to to handle her care. And so at this time, we had a number of clinical trials open. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what might be available to her. And what's cool about this case is that, yes, these trials are now closed. They're about to read out. Uh, but these are going to be, hopefully, uh, depending on the results, things that we'll be able to offer our patients in the clinic. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, number of phase three trials that are either completely enrolled or close to being enrolled that will potentially impact um, this patient in the clinic. So first is the regimen that we've been talking about quite a bit, the combination of Pembro and Linvatinib, and comparing it to standard upfront chemotherapy. So this LEAP001 study randomized patients to either Lenpem or Paclitaxel carboplatin. And our patient would fit this trial. She was newly diagnosed stage four. She had a PS of zero. They're looking to improve progression-free and overall survival. We like that for her. But unfortunately, this particular trial wasn't an option for her because it did exclude carcinosarcoma. Well, what about the phase three keynote C93 trial? This trial is actually trying to move single agent pembrolizumab into the front line um, as compared to chemotherapy, but it is for patients with mismatch repair deficient disease appropriately, right? We know that that patient population does have a really nice benefit from single agent. So patients are stage three, four, um, including carcinosarcoma. Um, they have an ECOG of zero or one um, and mismatch repair deficiency. Now, our patient doesn't qualify for this trial because she had microsatellite stable disease, but certainly nice that they included carcinosarcoma here. So then the question has come, can we actually use other combination strategies? We've talked about immunotherapy with TKI, but what about combining immunotherapy with chemotherapy or immunotherapy with chemotherapy and PARP inhibitors. So this is um, uh, a nice little table of the studies we're about to talk about that are trying to move the envelope forward and add something to chemo rather than replace chemo. So first is GY018, which actually just completed enrollment. Um, This is adding pembrolizumab to standard of care chemotherapy. And this was um, a patient population that um, is advanced or recurrent, no prior chemo or prior chemo if it was more than 12 months ago, appropriate performance status, and they're randomized two to one to either paclitaxel carboplatin alone or paclitaxel carboplatin with pembrolizumab, and they're looking to improve progression-free survival. They are looking at it in the mismatch repair deficient group as well as in all comers. Similarly, the ATTEND study, newly diagnosed, frontline, chemo-naive or platinum more than six months ago, appropriate performance status, randomizing to chemotherapy with or without atezolizumab, okay? And primary endpoints are overall survival and PFS. So she might, this might have worked for her. The RUBY study, so there's two parts to the RUBY study. 
The first part was combining uh, chemotherapy with or without dostarlamab. Okay, so again, advanced recurrent, no prior chemo or prior chemo if it's more than 12 months ago. They did allow carcinosarcoma, so this is a potential option for our patients. Um, patients were randomized and they're looking to improve progression-free survival. Now, hot off the press, there has been a press release around Ruby Part 1 that indicates that um, the trial met its primary endpoint of investigator-assessed progression-free survival and showed a clinically meaningful benefit in pre-specified um, so, uh, analyses, including the mismatch repair deficient subgroup, as well as an all-comer subgroup. That's all we know. We have no data yet, uh, just this press release, but certainly very exciting. Um, and into we'll have to determine um, how this uh, will potentially impact our patients. I will note Ruby Part 2 is still, I believe, maybe still enrolling or may almost be done now. That is taking the next step and adding a PARP inhibitor to uh, dostarlamab as, um, as a maintenance strategy. Now, what did we do with this patient? This patient went on my Phase 3 DOE study. So DOE was similar to these last couple groups, Stage 3 or 4, recurrent, chemo-naive, or had response to chemo and was off for more than 12 months, and they're randomized to three arms, okay? So the, there's either chemotherapy alone, chemotherapy with dervalumab followed by dervalumab maintenance, or chemotherapy with dervalumab followed by dervalumab and elaborate maintenance. And this did allow for carcinosarcoma, and she still remains on therapy. So fingers crossed for her. So let's talk a little bit more. This woman, um, you know, is a, a great example of making sure you have access to the the next best therapy, right? She would have gotten paclitaxel, carboplatin. Who knows what might have happened? She remains on maintenance now, and she's doing very well. And there's something to be said for the improvement of benefit um, and clinical benefit that we see in patients that have access to clinical trials. Now we know we got to do clinical trials to get medicines into the into practice, medicines into the clinic but you're giving patients early access too, right? So if you've got clinical trials open or you have access to an, um, a group that does, you're giving your patient a chance at a, a potentially more meaningful, better outcome um, before it gets out to everyone else. So you can see that personal benefit definitely directly to your patient with improved disease outcomes. But then also there's that um, idea around altruism that you're helping others and that you're improving the care of other women by participating in these clinical trials. As I've mentioned before, I'm kind of beating the drum on this. We've got to improve our, our diversity in clinical trials to make sure that every single patient is represented and so that we know that these, these regimens that are excellent in clinical trials actually will truly benefit every single patient in our clinic, regardless of race, ethnicity. And the only way to do that is to improve education around clinical trials, improve access, and also find out what the other barriers are. Why aren't these patients going on clinical trials? How can we overcome those barriers? So we've talked a lot about what's going on right now. Um, but let's talk a little bit more, just spend the next few minutes talking about what is coming um, down the pike and see some really interesting novel agents that, that are being explored and, and showing some real promise in endometrial cancer. And this includes um, targets such as WE1, ATR, 
um, cyclin-dependent kinase inhibition like CDK4-6, CDK1-2, um, as well as antibody drug conjugates, which have really come into fruition in ovarian cancer and are now being explored in um, endometrial cancer as well. Arguably one that's the, the farthest along is a drug called Selenexor. Now, <clears throat> Selenexor um, uh, inhibits exportin, which basically is an export protein that moves tumor suppressor proteins like BRCA, P10, P53. And when you block that, it traps those tumor suppressor proteins in the nucleus, nucleus to um, and allows them to be reactivated. This is especially important for tumor suppressor uh, tumor suppressor proteins that are going to help um, uh, create um, mitotic catastrophe and and kill those tumor cells. So specifically, Selenexor seems to reactivate p53, which is of course incredibly important across a number of different cancers, including endometrial cancer. And we've seen activity of this agent as a single agent um, and and now are um, exploring it in a number of different places. The place that's farthest along is um, uh, in the maintenance setting. So this was the phase three CNDO study. This was for patients with stage four or recurrent endometrial cancer that had had benefit on um, carboplatin and taxine combination. Um, they were then randomized two to one to either uh, receiving Selenexor at 80 milligrams weekly um, or placebo. And they were continued on either one of these agents until progressive disease. The primary endpoint of the study was progression-free survival, investigator assessed. And they also looked at a number of other relevant um, secondary endpoints, including looking at molecular subclassification using P53, mismatch repair proteins, and poly, just like we talked about earlier today. Bottom line, it worked. So in the intent to treat population, they did see um, a reduction in the risk of progression of about 30% for the patient population that was treated with Selenexor. But interestingly, when they teased out some of the subpopulations, they saw patients with endometrioid histology seemed to get the biggest benefit, almost a 50% reduction. When they teased out even more, looking at the molecular subclassification, it became apparent, although this was a subset analysis, um, that uh, that it, it did seem that the biggest benefit was derived in those patients with wild type P53. And that makes sense, right? We talked about this traps those tumor suppressors in the nucleus. So if you have a mutated tumor suppressor that's not going to work, it's not going to help you have better outcomes versus if you have a wild type active tumor suppressor in P53, that's where you're going to see the biggest benefit of this drug. So this is moving forward in a clinical trial just in that select P53 um, wild type population. Um, and I'm hoping that all of you are opening that trial at your institutions now. Safety, of course, is important whenever we're talking about maintenance. We're keeping somebody on a regimen for years. We want to make sure it's tolerable. Overall, um, this was this was fairly tolerable. The the adverse events were manageable with supportive care and importantly with dose modifications. So you did see dose interruption in about 50% of patients and um, dose reduction in about 50% as well, but only 10% discontinued and there were no deaths. And so this does seem to be safe. Um, it's, it's certainly you need to learn how to modify and, and support your patients that are, are receiving it, but it is worth um, the side effect profile if they're going to live longer. Now, around that P53 target as well, um, this is an, um, a we want inhibition has been really exciting. So how does this work? So what we know 
is P53 um, is uh, the regulator of the G1S checkpoint, right? And so when it's mutant, there is increased in replication stress and an increased dependence on later checkpoints like the G2M checkpoint. Now the G2M checkpoint is regulated by we one And so just like we see with BRCA and PARP inhibitors, we're able to have like a two-hit synthetic lethal combination. If you've already have loss of P53 and then you hit and, and inhibit we one you see, again, increased cellular catastrophe and cellular death. And so this is does seem to be a way to select a very potent targeted therapy for our patients. Now, we know uterine serous has a high proportion of P53 aberrations. And so the thought um, and the hypothesis for utilizing we want inhibition in this disease was to um, kind of take advantage of that dependence on the G2M checkpoint in that particular uh, cell type. And what we've seen so far is this was this hypothesis is correct. So adavastatib is a we one inhibitor that was explored in only uterine serous tumors. They did not select by p53 mutation. They just tried to um, uh, select by the by the histology type. And what they found was the response rate was about thirty percent in a pretty heavily pretreated um, group of patients with endometrial cancer. And importantly. 47% of patients um, were alive progression-free at six months. Um, so very exciting data. And certainly, again, we do see toxicities with these different um, inhibitors. And the majority of patients actually experienced at least diarrhea, fatigue, and nausea. But they could be managed with um, supportive care. And the majority of patients did stay on trial. So, you know, I think we've covered a lot of data today um, and certainly have seen a lot of really exciting things that are either available now or are going to be available to our patients over the next few years. So as these choices expand, it's going to be really important for us to maintain connections and collaborations with our multidisciplinary and multi-professional team in order to be most effective with our patient management. So let's talk a little bit about the role of the wider clinical care team in supporting our patients. And so we know in our team, it's not just us, right? We can have advanced practice providers like physicians assistants, NPs. We have nurses, we have pharmacists, we can have genetic counselors, pathologists, really work together as a group to understand what we're doing, what are these mechanisms of action of the agents that we're using, help kind of get out in front of the potential adverse events and problems that patients might experience, um, and maybe prevent and at least at the very least educate our patients around the potential for these adverse events and how to, to mitigate them. We also bring clinical trial expertise to our patients. We facilitate communication. I think I mentioned multiple times when we were talking about the immune-related adverse events, how I love getting other groups involved, DERM, GI, endocrine, get them all involved to help have your patient have that best outcome. And then of course, refer your patient for appropriate support services. So this conclusion slide is full of data because we've covered a lot over the last hour. The bottom line is we previously did have limited treatment options, but now we're seeing those options expand. And I expect over the next few years to have a huge array of options for our patients. We know that this tumor is increasing in incidence and mortality. And so there's still a lot left that we need to understand and a lot left we need to do to overcome 
this disparity among the tumor itself and then also the racial disparities that exist um, within endometrial cancer. I hope I've convinced you biomarker testing is the way to go at the bare minimum utilizing mismatch repair deficiency testing um, to really understand what therapies your patient has, as well as determine if she might have a genetic syndrome that's contributing. Um, When you do find that patient with microsatellite instability, high disease, single agent checkpoint is the way to go. If the patient has microsatellite stable disease um, or uh, uh, microsatellite or mismatch repair proficient tumors, that's where we're looking at the combination of um, Pembro and Lenvatinib. And to be determined over the next few years, if some of these agents get to move up into the upfront setting, and then we're going to be working through how to determine should we use chemotherapy versus, um, versus combination strategies. And then we need to be prioritizing clinical trial enrollment so we can continue to change the standard of care and provide the best outcomes for our patients. And we really need to work on understanding what the barriers are for diversity within clinical trials and try to overcome those barriers. Um, and then finally, throughout this talk, I've, I've spoken to you about patient education and making sure our patients understand the treatments that are being offered understand the potential adverse events so they can make a good decision and then also have the best outcome while they're receiving that therapy. So I just want to thank you all uh, so much for joining us today. Um, I think we've seen the evidence that supports the use of checkpoint inhibitors uh, for the treatment of patients with advanced cancer and hopefully learn some effective approaches for integrating them into clinical care. Um, I've also reviewed some novel approaches that are underway potentially uh, representing some alternatives for our patients. Uh, just just remember, you've got to garner perspectives from all team members um, of the care team and to have discussions about treatment fo- decisions that best fit the need of your individual patient, utilizing a shared decision-making approach. Um, don't forget, you can download the practice aids associated with educational activity as a resource for you, your staff, and your patients. And thanks again. We hope you found this activity informative and useful for your practice. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GEP 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca ISI Incorporated, Karyopharm Therapeutics, and Merkin Company Incorporated.